One of the first questions I have is how did you reconstruct all of the conversations that you have in your book? You have a lot of incredibly interesting, very, very detailed philosophical conversations there. Yeah, and I don't have a great memory, and it was a real struggle to write a memoir. I um, I have a few special problems. I, I have prosopognosia, so I can't recognize people by face, and so that means it's harder for me to really reconstruct exactly who was where. Um, but I have a strong memory for conversations about ideas, because I remember them almost like these um, these little stories are like the structure of my memory. They're like the, the, the uh, um, these, these little uh, morality plays that I lived through that directed me. And so I actually have a kind of a vivid recall of them. Now, is this recall entirely reliable? Uh, I've tried to check with others in cases where I could, and it's actually not too bad. Uh, I can't claim it's perfect. I think it's at least generally pretty honest, though. It's a funny thing. I mean, when you when you try to write about your own past, you you really are struggling against your own brain and also trying to get what you can out of it. Because of course, we all have a tendency, I think, to lie about our past to ourselves. We construct a a persona and a history that works well for us. And so, when you write a memoir, what you have to do is figure out. If what your goal is, to be honest, which is really what my goal was, how can you kind of leverage that and try to get something as close to what the important part of truth is you can? So it's some of the conversations might be kind of ideal combinations of a few conversations. I'm not, I'm not really sure. Yeah, I mean, it's especially interesting because I think you mentioned at one point writing this after you had already worked on, like, mined some of this material in previous books. Because I feel like the way that you think about your life changes based on where you are. Yeah, that's true. I mean, um, my books have always had a little bit of autobiography in them. I'll throw in a little bit. This one uh, has much more autobiography than the previous ones. But I didn't, for the most part, there are a few cases where I actually retell stories from the previous ones, but sometimes I just refer to those because I figure the recounting I was able to generate when I was younger might be the more reliable one. It's funny that you specifically mentioned the sort of magical realism of your childhood, and it is really interesting. And it feels like something that maybe couldn't necessarily happen now, and I'm wondering if you think that's true. Mm. Well, it certainly couldn't happen in the same geographical place because I grew up on the border with Mexico, which used to be this very sweet, open border between two very different cultures, but you could move back and forth between it. And I think that ability to move through very different environments, different cultures very easily was very important to my early life. I think it helped shape my sense of what's possible with people. And I think uh, if you grew up along that border today and there's this huge military scale barrier, um, you'd probably get exactly the opposite impression of the world, that things are impossible and that things can only be as they are. And that is a sad development, isn't it? But I, I I can imagine some other kid growing up near some other dramatic open border um, having a similar experience. And I think they, those borders probably exist in the world today, although apparently they're fewer and fewer. Do you think that online communication can get at some of the same openness that you had? Well, that's what we'd like. I mean, unfortunately, what's happened is the online world has been structured by what I view as the perverse uh, financial incentives of the advertising model into exactly the opposite, where people are corralled into these groups that are made to be as annoyed as possible with each other. So we're effectively creating a wall between people that's analogous to the big wall going up with Mexico now. So um, it could be a magical place of openness and encountering other cultures, but it's turning into precisely the opposite. How much of it do you think is advertising and like actual deliberately structured disincentives and how much of it is just tribalism? Well, I think the tribalism wasn't planned. I don't think there's anybody in Silicon Valley who had a meeting in, in the boardroom and said, we want to make people tribal. <laughs> I just don't think that happened. I don't think there's some evil genius with these schemes. I think it's just that our prime directive is to maximize engagement and the way you engage people is by addicting them with um, a noisy feedback loop, as is well known. It's what makes gambling addictive and then with emotions and the emotional, the negative emotions are more effective. So you make them fearful and, and um, uh, resentful and uh, worried about what other people think of them. And all of that wraps together into what we call tribalism eventually. So it's it's just the incentives playing out. Can you get can you get people addicted to a positive behavioral feedback loop? And like, is that something that it would be ethical to do? 
I think it's what we call love. And it exists, but it can be elusive. And it's not something that happens as automatically. Should people be trying to design platforms for love or just to not squash it? Yeah. So that's a really interesting question. Because um, if you had talked to me, I think that's one difference between me today and me in my 20s. If you talked to me in my 20s, I possibly would have said, yes, we should design for love. We should design for love and, and we can do it. And now I think that if you're too idealistic that way, if you try to design for love, it'll backfire because you'll just end up, I mean, like you can't model and control people and think you understand love. You can't do these things. What you have to do is just open up possibilities for people to find their own ways. And so what I think is going on right now in the online world, um, Ordinary users have only one incentive, which is to get attention. And so they act out like little kids and they get mean to each other and they do stupid things. And then people are putting money into it. The people we call the advertisers just want to manipulate the behavior of the people. And their their money spends farther when they're destroying society instead of building it. So those incentives are backwards too. Um, the example I've been using lately, and, and somebody might think I'm a little um, – biased in this because with Microsoft owns LinkedIn and I'm, I work in Microsoft Labs. But if you look at LinkedIn, it's a big social network uh, where you don't have the uh, uh, malicious fake news. You don't have as much uh, in the way of bullying and sort of catfishing and all these things that happen everywhere else. And the reason I don't, I don't think there's anything magical about it beyond this very, very, very simple quality that at least there's some other incentive there. People are trying to further their career. So they have something to do other than seeking attention or manipulating each other and just creating that extra option just opens things up and makes things better. And so I, I guess going back to your question, do you want to design for love or do you just want to try to avoid designs that that destroy it? I think the latter is better. I think just giving people possibilities, giving them the room to be better and having faith in them is probably the best option. I mean, there are places that have tried to replace the advertising model. And one of the things I'm thinking of right now is Patreon, which has a very idealistic pitch about micropayments and donations and patronage, is that viable? Well, it's like a stub. Um, I mean, in the sense, like, you can't have a patronage-based society because at some point people have to just make a living – how do I put this? Um, the In a society, you have to have an ability for uh, non-zero thinking. You have to think that um, uh, if, if I – send money into something, even more will come back to me because overall the society is growing in its capability and wealth and uh, the pie is getting larger for everybody. The tide is rising for everybody. And in, um, if you think in terms of patronage, even if it's widely distributed, um, it just kind of turns into a redistribution between people who are supporting things maybe out of goodwill, but it doesn't have quite the same sense of investment in everything that makes uh, that makes markets grow. And uh, so I think it's it's a step in the right direction, but I don't think it goes far enough. I mean, what's the core sort of economic difference between that and the system that I maybe don't totally understand that you've talked about a lot, which is about kind of very microtransactions for content and for AI training and for all of these things. Yeah, so <laughs> I don't want to claim that anybody understands it fully. Uh, and there isn't even a single name for it. This is the thing I proposed in the book called Who Owns the Future. Um, and the notion here is that if people bring value into an online system, they get direct reward for it in the form of perhaps money or something similar to money. Uh, and they do that with each other. And as a result of that, people can make a living out of the online world instead of being in a, a barter uh, relationship to it while only those who manipulate beha their behaviors make money and then concentrate wealth to an un untenable degree. Um, I, in order to explain it um, – so my favorite example for getting into this is the example of translators. So people who translate between languages have seen their livelihoods just destroyed. And uh, the reason why is that we have automated translation now, except it's not really automated. That's a lie. Uh, in order to make the, automated, the automation systems effectively translate, we have to go back to people who are live people doing real translations every single day and steal tens of millions of example phrases from them in order to keep uh, language translation alive because pop culture and references do actually change every single day. 
And so we're pretending they're not needed. We're pretending they're going to be put out of work by robots and we're building this giant electronic brain that's better than them and they're just going to subsist on basic income or something. When in fact we still need them, it's just that we're stealing from them and we're pretending they're not needed. And so it's it's dishonest, it's degrading, it's not sustainable. So if instead they were paid according to the value of the data they're putting in that makes this wonderful new service of automate, so-called automated translation happen, then they could still be making a living. They'd be incentivized to actually give better examples so that everything would work better. It would be a virtuous cycle. And then you have a sustainable new economy instead of an unsustainable new economy and everybody's being honest with each other, which is, I think, uh, a good thing. So that maybe is an example that can help you see it. Yeah. No, it's, uh, yeah, I remember that mm-hmm. in the book also. Mm-hmm. And to get back to the book and virtual reality, <laughs> one of the sort of definitions that I really liked was the whole point of advancing VR is to make VR always obsolete and that it sort of makes people better detectives of illusion and reality. Mm-hmm. Is that something that's really specific to VR? Does any technological development make people better at looking for what's real? I think some some do more than others. So if you have a non-interactive medium, like a movie, let's say, I don't know if it necessarily does, because to perceive the movie, you have to suspend disbelief, and you're just sitting there passive, and you're sort of pretending that you're perceiving reality, but the, but actual perception is always interactive. It's always probing. And so you're, you're artificially putting yourself into this solely receptive state. And so I... I think individual movies can help you learn or help you perceive reality better because of their content and their intent and and how well they're executed. But as a general rule, cinema doesn't necessarily do that. Uh, I think there are other things that do. Learning to play poker probably helps you understand if people are lying, for instance, because it's interactive. Right. And so I think in that sense, virtual reality, since it's an interactive illusion, it can help you notice how you perceive things. It can help you notice what illusions work for you and what, which don't. And, and uh, now I say can. I'm not saying it definitely will. I think, um, as I also say in the book, it can also be turned into the creepiest behavior modification device of all time. So there's no guarantee it'll be used well, but it has this remarkable potential, I think, to teach you about your own cognition and to teach you to notice illusions and trickery. Mm-hmm. So do you count passive, like, spherical, quote-unquote, video as VR in a headset? Yeah, that's a tricky one. So according to the original definition of VR, which was mine, so I can at least say what it used to mean, it was very specifically the social use of, of totally interactive worlds in which you're embodied and and uh, you're an avatar and you can do anything in the world. Um, so by that original definition, neither spherical video nor single-player VR, nor um, totally canned non-creative VR, where the same thing happens all the time and there's not much the user can do to change it, none of those things would qualify. And yet, of course, those are the most familiar forms that are called VR these days. Um, I I have to say, um, there's this whole world of people who argue about what these terms mean and what what VR, what should be VR, what do we call augmented reality, what do we call mixed reality, and all these things. And people are making up new terms to add to the stew all the time, and there's no end to it. So I, I've, I decided just for the sake of having room for life to not worry too much about what the terms mean exactly anymore. <laughs> so I just, I'm not going to really worry about the definition. Um, spherical VR uh, spherical video can be really interesting. Um, I think it's uh, in some cases beautiful. I think in some cases it's been socially important, such as in uh, documenting the the experience of a refugee, that sort of thing. Um, but I probably wouldn't call it VR. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, actually, the I was curious about your take on VR and empathy because you mm-hmm. mentioned it a little bit in the book, but I'd be interested in a more comprehensive take? Well, if if um, if you were interviewing my 20-something self, I'd be all over the place with this very eloquent and guru-like and I think compelling um, pitch that VR was the ultimate empathy machine, that through VR we'd be able to experience getting outside of ourselves, experience a broader range of identities, and it would help us see the world in a broader way and, and be less stuck in our own heads. And it certainly can be that. And that that idea, that rhetoric has been um, f- 
quite present in recent VR culture. You see a lot of VR artists and producers talking about empathy. And in, indeed, even some of the corporations do it. But then um, there are no guarantees here. And I mean, there was this recent kind of ridiculous fail where uh, Zuckerberg was you know, showing devastation in in Puerto Rico and saying, oh, this is a great empathy machine. Isn't it magical to experience this while, while he's in this devastated place that the country's um, abandoned cruelly because the people don't have skin as light as we want or something like that? And and there's something just enraging about that, like, you, like if empathy should actually be effective. Like empathy should sometimes be angry if, if anger is the appropriate response. And I think anger is what empathy should look like in Puerto Rico right now. And the lack of it is sort of bizarre and, and disorienting, you know, and um, and so it's just proof that you can't, there's no such thing as like some machine that will make you a better person. Like you can have tools, but ultimately it's up to you. So it's, it's a, it's um, uh, the potential of VR to broaden one's sense of self is profound and therefore the intent, the, the, the potential for empathy is also profound. Uh, the, pretend, the potential for VR to be a bridge between people in new ways is astonishing um, in ways that I think most of the people in it haven't realized yet. Um, and, um, but there's no guarantee. There's no guarantee. Uh, I, I like to think of it as being like um, a challenge, like trying to further scientific knowledge or engineer new things. Like they'll have setbacks. It's hard. Like just just being decent, just being decent to other people, learning how to be ethical, learning how to be empathetic is is hard work. It's a, it's it's we should expect it to be a challenge, and I think that's the only realistic way to approach it. Mm-hmm. I mean, what about VR? Sort of specifically promotes empathy? Is it being with another person in an environment that you both create? Is it having a very realistic look at how someone else is living? Like what Mm. part of that is actually meaningful? There are a few few things about it. Um, One thing about it is we experience ourselves as being in these uh, separate bodies and we experience a sense of self-interest as being different from uh, shared interest. Um, it's uh, and whenever we have a little bit of a sense of shared interest because we share a lot of genes with somebody or connected to them or something, that can uh, shift our sense of empathy to where we care about them more. But it's very easy to think other people are really separate. There's this thing that can happen in virtuality. I guess the most dramatic uh, version is. So (laughs) you can do this thing in reality where you can become a different creature. You can have a non-human avatar and it's it's a striking, remarkable, surprising thing that shouldn't happen but it does. You can turn into a gazelle or a jellyfish or something and you can control that body and experience being in that body. So then you can extend it to, for instance, share a body with another person and that might be a body in which – their two heads or something to account for two perspectives or maybe um, in the in the book I talk about sharing eyes or something and when you have to coordinate with somebody else to have a body it's an incredible experience all of a sudden you really are outside of yourself you have this vivid sense in your sensory motor loop of being connected to somebody else and in my youth, to be really honest, I tended to think of that in a, in a, in a sort of a romantic and sexual framework because, you know, I was a young person and did that. Um, but um, I think it's a much broader thing. It's a way of getting outside of yourself that's very deep and vivid and, um, and something you don't often get to do. And it just it just shocks you because it gives you this feeling that there is this way of perceiving the world that's not just me, 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 me. And as soon as you can get to that point, I do think empathy opens up, um, but not by guarantee. Once again, you can apply any good tool to horrible ends. You can, you know, Buddhists can behave badly and <laughs> like all these things. Like there's no guarantee here. So I, I, I just always want to caution that I'm not suggesting any kind of panacea or, or perfect perfect guidance from a tool. There, such a thing doesn't exist. Right. And there's been a case – I mean there was a book. There's a case against empathy, which is that empathy can also be turned to terrible ends. Empathy can be turned to terrible ends uh, because – 
people behave like jerks when they turn into tribes or packs. And so empathy with others in your group can turn into enmity towards the others. So uh, the theory I, I started to have when I was working with these problems in my 20s was that um, people are like wolves in the sense that we can be either solo creatures, singletons, or pack creatures and groups. And people acting as individuals can be horrible, but in general, people are more horrible when they're acting as groups because then they evaluate, um, they, they cower within the group because there's a pecking order. They uh, raise undue authority to whoever's at the head of their group, and then they have undue enmity and negativity towards people from other groups. Um, now, the problem with the online world today is that to maximize engagement, you need to maximize emotional engagement as well as just the raw addiction power of, of, of noisy feedback. And the emotions that are the most engaging are the negative ones. And the best way to raise negative emotions is through fear, terror, um, uh, resentment, uh, status, anxiety, um, all, hatred, just all, all these things. And, and, and naturally, as a matter of chasing those, you put people back into packs and then you start creating online mobs or packs that become just unconscionably and inconceivably mean to each other. Um, I guess I could restate the theory I've, I've been working with that's actually for an upcoming book that um, there, there's a um, there's this thing that I think uh, a lot of people perceive and I think it's real in history of a sort of an arc of improving empathy and ethics and civilization that it's it, it's uh, the further back in history you get the more appallingly people behaved roughly. Okay, you see astonishing things like the way people treated children routinely in 19th century London or something is just astonishing to us. And uh, one part of why things have changed is that as technology gets better, it just gives us more options. So maybe we just have more wiggle room, more options to become better. But also I think that when people – try to have campaigns for social betterment, they actually have an effect, like uh, women's suffrage or ab abolition or any of these things. It's not that there weren't setbacks. It's not that there weren't um, counter-effects, but at least over time, things got better. So there's this arc of history that we talk about. Recently, it's just been reversed. Recently, every time somebody seems to be on the verge of making things better, everything goes worse instead. The Arab Spring turned into this horrible wave of terrorist, um, uh, you know, uh, nihilism and and the return of horrible despotism and uh, uh, when women got together to try to improve their lot in the gaming world it turned into Gamergate which turned into the alt-right and Black Lives Matter preceded this kind of normalization of racism and white supremacy that was just unthinkable a year before and what I think is going on is that all of these movements which are so social media centric uh, are then they they provide the fuel to the system because the only fuel these uh, social media systems have is what people put into it. So they're all of their good energy is the fuel, but then to maximize the value of that fuel, it's routed into negative purposes. So uh, the people the people who are the most irritated by whatever's going on that's positive are introduced to each other. They're put in this pot and stirred and put under more and more pressure. And so the initial positive fuel comes back as even greater negative fuel. So the backlash is vastly more powerful than the initial attempt. And so that leads me to my prediction, which is that Me Too will create some kind of horrible social event through social media in about a year, because that's about how long it takes. That'll be much worse than anything we anticipate. And I don't know what it'll look like, but it'll happen. Yeah, I've thought about that, too, a lot. Yeah. So I don't know how we yeah, – I mean, like, I do know how we get out of it. We change the underlying financial incentives. But um, but for now, I, I mean, we just have to sit and wait and watch it happen, and it'll be horrible. Yeah, do you think we're still trending upward, or do you think that the system we've set up actually will just break this arc of history? It's broken it. I mean, just in the last few years, every positive social movement has resulted in – a social media-driven counter-movement that's massively more powerful and, and, and terribly destructive. So the arc of history has just been reversed by Facebook, more or less, and, and other and its compatriot companies that run on the advertising model. Um, it um, People, I mean, there's so much to say about this. But yeah, I mean, right now, all the sweet and well-meaning people who try to organize for social betterment on social media are systematically, mechanically, and deterministically undermined. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, it seems like we don't have a very long sample is the thing, that it seems like we only have a few years and there were probably periods in history that also trended downward terribly. And you might be right, and I dearly hope you are, and there's a space for that. Um, the The thing is, um, we can see how the machine works. It's not like this is some hypothetical black box. The truth is, I mean, it's a bit of a black box because we're not allowed to see the algorithms and we don't really, you know, we don't see it in detail. But in, in general outline, we know how the machine works. And um, it's what the machine running efficiently looks like the outcome I described. Um, I agree with you, though. I mean, there's no, it's not really deterministic. And so may, uh, and it, it might start to shift. It's very possible. For one thing, I think it might shift simply because enough people in, in, in the tech community are starting to regret uh, where we've come. And uh, there might be enough motion from inside to start to change it. So I, uh, I'm with you. It's going to be different. It's going to change. It's going to just be a little historical glitch, and we'll remember it as an anomaly. I, I really want that to be true. And if you want to take the huge counterpoint of that, the thing that we have that's not going to respond to this gradualism is climate change, that it kind of seems like everything else, all of these arcs are potentially going to get derailed by that. Well, um, yeah. So uh, climate change is uh, – climate change denialism is a specifically American problem. It's not a global problem. So we have to um, we have to realize that, like uh, the um, the rise of neo-fascist um, populist movements, is a global problem, and it's always social media driven. The failure of positive social reform is uh, a global problem. The rise of crazy, paranoid um, ethnic cleansing from the bottom up, uh, driven by social media, is uh, a global problem. And by, by the way, this, this has been happening. This is uh, the Rohingya crisis. Uh, things going on in parts of India. Things going on in parts of Africa are all seem to be social media driven. Um, so there are things that are global in general. Climate change denialism is our own incredible stupidity and tragedy. And I think our hope there is that the rest of the world is bigger than us and will make up for our idiocy. I think acknowledging climate change, though, that's only one step. That even if we had acknowledged climate change and Obama had gotten more years it's unclear whether anything we're doing is great enough to actually stop really terrible things from happening. I'm of the view that uh, to deal with climate change will require a combination of, of um, efforts on many levels at the same time. And there are a number of projects that have tried to model ways we can combine efforts from sort of very simple things on a mass level to new technological developments and uh, and sort of moonshot technologies that can help. Uh, and I think the, the combination, the ensemble of all the things we can do can meet the challenge. Uh, I feel convinced of that. I just think the United States is not going to play much of a role in it for a while. Mm -hmm. Is that something that's going to be driven by large numbers of people or is it going to be a few people who come up with big moonshot technological solutions? I think it has to be both, actually. I think it's a big problem that will require action on many levels. Uh, I, um, I'm very friendly to both the efforts to, um, to make our general way of life less self-destructive and also to high-tech solutions that might, might be able to do a lot with just a single project or two. Um, I think we need both levels. I, I, I don't like the idea of, of, of uh, imagining those two things to be in conflict. Actually, I, one of the things that is part of this that you touched on is also the idea of optimistic futures. I really liked the conversation that you reconstructed with William Gibson, <laughs> talking about how his books shouldn't be so depressing because they were still incredibly attractive. <laughs> well, you know, one of the themes in this book is the sort of futility of trying to warn about dangers. So when I was young, I had... I realized that there were people who had been really articulate about how information te technology could go wrong in the future from way before my time. I mean, uh, Norbert Wiener in uh, The Human Use of Human Beings, 1950, warns about the danger of a, a global information system that would addict people and then manipulate them and make society absurd. Uh, he, he points out that it's hard to imagine something like that, that there couldn't be some sort of global computation facility with wireless links to devices on every person that are on 24 hours a day. So he says it's, that's not feasible, so there's nothing to worry about. But if that thing could come to being, we'd have a real problem. And, of course, we, we've built exactly that. Although even earlier, uh, 
something like 1907, I think, or maybe it was 1909, The Machine Stops by E.M. Forster, roughly describes the dysfunction of our modern world. And so people had been describing the dysfunctional world for a long time. And I had this crazy idea when I was in my early 20s that um, maybe just through conjuring, by just trying to really imagine a better world instead of dystopias, maybe instead of endless renditions of 1984 and Brave New World and all these things. Instead of that, we would, um, if we could try to articulate the better future, maybe it would just happen through that process of articulation. Uh, so uh, when the cyberpunk movement started up, yeah, I did have these preposterous arguments with Bill, with, uh, with Bill Gibson saying, oh my God, you're making it so dark, you're going to curse it. And uh, of course, that was I was being ridiculous. And I, I completely acknowledge that now. Um, but I, I should say it, it's a bit of a problem because um, I've tried it both ways. I've tried to articulate as well as I can um, a positive future. I've tried to implement tests of possible positive futures in the future. Like I, um, it, you might not be old enough to remember Second Life. Old enough to remember Second Life. You. <laughs> But uh, that was an example of an experiment with putting an economy in virtual reality. And I, th I thought it actually was a positive result. I was, you know, not, not perfect on, by any means, but, but positive enough to be an indicator of, of how things could work. And um, I've also experimented myself with dark stuff. I worked on uh, the um, – I made up some of the scenes in Minority Report and the gadgets in it. And that was like this cautionary movie. And then what happens? Every time you're in some meeting in Silicon Valley where somebody has a gadget, you oh, that looks so cool. It's like something from Minority Report. We have to build and sell that. And I'm like, no, Minority Report was supposed to be this dark cautionary thing about what to avoid. And it, it just seems – it seems as though um, cautionary tales don't – work. You know, people just are seduced by the coolness factor over and over again. And um, I, I, I feel like just straightforward rational argument is still the best tool to try to make a better future. I feel like storytelling for some reason doesn't rouse people from their, their kind of uh, immediate attraction to sort of coolness. And it's, that, that actually turns out to be poisonous. Yeah, I, th I think Michael Abrash, who I, whose work I really love, talked about VR in terms of the Matrix at a Facebook event a while ago, mm -hmm. which was very strange. Well, I mean, the Matrix is a, a perfectly respectable cautionary tale. I think in this, it's a um, this notion. I mean, like in Silicon Valley now, you hear people saying these horrible things sometimes at dinner parties, like, "Well, soon we're going to put everybody out of work because our robots and our AI algorithms will get really good." And it's so fortunate that this opiate crisis came up right now because we need everybody just to be drugged out so they'll just sit there on their basic income and not bother us when everything's automated. And I'm like, "What? What did you just say? What did you just say?" And and that's exactly the Matrix, right? That's that's their 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 plot is that everybody's just kind of in this. Um, it's just pacified and sitting there because they have some minor value. So they're not worth killing, but that, you know, and, and that, and yet, yeah, people perceive the matrix that way as sort of like this really cool thing instead of as this cautionary tale. It's, it's a, it's an interesting barrier, isn't it? Actually going back to um, Second Life though, what do you think of the actual headset based follow-ups to that, like Sansar and High Fidelity and Alt Space? Well, uh, High Fidelity has a lot of the same people. Phil Brosdale's in it. Um, I Look, I really encourage people to work on social virtuality. I mean, the little problem with that is that right now one of the big VR companies is uh, Facebook with their Oculus division. And they're, they have sort of the most socially destructive and worst thing going online probably. So I sort of – it's unfortunate. That's an unfortunate connection. And what I hope is that Facebook will simply change its business plan before virtuality gets much better. And I know that's, that might sound like, well, why would they do that? Because it's the right thing to do. I just think they will realize it. It'll make more money. It'll be more sustainable. It'll make for a better world. So I think they'll do it. I, I Call me crazy. Maybe I am. But I, I just think somehow somebody's going to get through to them and they're going to realize that that's what they should do. Um, but yeah, social virtuality is where it's at. I think there's something incredibly lonely and sterile about like you download some virtual world and you stick on a headset and then you look around inside it. Like I, I just don't relate to that at all. I just, I just think that's nowhere. I'm, I'm really interested in connecting with other people. I think um, I uh, in the book I think I said it should be like a cross between uh, jazz and cinema and programming. But what I'd say now is it should be a cross between Skype and Burning Man. 
You know, like it should be like live people, real time, but fantastical worlds where you can constantly make things up and it's always different. And and creativity is more prized than um, just raw attention. And I think that that could be just a really beautiful thing. And I know a lot of other people feel that and a lot of the developers who are interested in the social side of it are are trying to find their way to it. Um, <clears throat> the problem with it is it's really hard to do. Like you have to to imagine what the user interface looks like to change the world while you're in it. To set it up so that that's even possible to make the whole thing run efficiently is is a real challenge. And uh, one of the problems is a lot of the big companies that get involved with this spend all their biggest budget on the optics, which is actually the least important thing. But everybody gets obsessed with that, with the display. And then they, they say, oh, and th slap some software on it. And then that becomes a, a bit of a... Uh, slap some, you know, come up with some controller and put some software on it. And it just ends up uh, being not as well wrought in the most important ways. It's a universal problem. It's always been true in VR and it's, it remains true. Actually, when talking about people creating their own worlds, it kind of seems like one of the things that people have really liked to do so far is recreate other worlds that they want to create, like recreate Star Wars or other pop culture. Is that still something that's good to you? Is that still interestingly creative? Well, a lot of that is just because it's easier to fund that. I mean, this comes up again and again. If somebody says, um, you know, I can raise some money for this, but I, you know, if I do it on Star Wars or some other well-known property, it'll be easier to raise certain kinds of money. That that happens a lot, or it's an easier decision to make to fund something with a theme like that. And uh, I think once in a while those can turn out well. You know, I, um, I, you know, if it were my utopia and I was going to run everything, I would say, no, 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 make the young VR designers design their own stuff because they'll come up with better and new stuff. And inheriting stuff from cinema is really not the best way to go. And it's not the best way to grow VR and it's not even the best business idea. But I understand, you know, when you're investing a lot, of, these things are expensive to produce. And so you have to be a little conservative and it feels like more conservative if you're working with a known title. So that, that's been you know, plaguing movies too, where everything's a sequel. So it's it's exactly the same problem. Um, but I, you know, I find a lot of the best and most hopeful work comes from the really small indie VR developers who just work out of a passion. And and a lot of them have broken through that problem, obviously, but they're not necessarily making their rent. So, <laughs> you know, they. Uh, I um, I feel like the best thing we can do to promote uh, really cool virtual reality development is just to have a working economy where people can make more money in it more easily. And so far, the general VR stores haven't really taken off as much as we might like. Uh, so, But I, I hope it's not a mega title economy. I hope it's one where um, small players really have a chance to move in and do well. Yeah. yeah. Actually, not to talk too much about economy, but what is your dream for how paying for things and paying for experiences works in VR? Well, I mean, something like what we did in Second Life, but even more intense. Like, I think um, every person who goes into VR should uh, have the chance to make money from it if what they do is stuff that other people like or want. And in in Second Life, it tended to be focused on things like avatar design or virtual building design or, or something like that. Uh, the niche that I'm super interested in the future is live performers who are really good in VR. Like, I'm really interested in somebody who comes online and is a really good improviser of crazy stuff in the world and is a really good performer, a really good um, actor or really good dancer or musician, um, artist. Uh, and uh, there's not even a great language for describing what this person would be like. They might be a little bit like a master of ceremonies or they might be a little bit like an entertainer you'd hire for a party or um, a stand-up comedian or uh, I don't know. I mean – there, there's, there are a lot of, of uh, precedents for it, but it's like this person who's improvising an, a, an aspect of reality and social interaction who's really good at it. And I feel like that profession is going to be maybe the central and best paid one of the virtual reality future, even though nobody like that exists yet. But I, I think that that's the obvious niche that will come to exist. Do you see anybody sort of moving toward it? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, it's funny. I see all kinds of things that feel a little like precedence to me, but not in the tech world. Like, I feel like um, like the drag queen world sometimes, to me, is almost a better precedent for where I hope VR goes and a lot of things from Silicon Valley. Because it's like this really creative, outrageous thing where people just make up outrageous stuff, but they do it in a way that's really inclusive and really live and interactive and entertaining. So, you know, so that might be a, that might be an example that is too far afield. But um, 
sometimes just the kinds of entertainers you invite to kids' birthday parties or something, they're like – they have to come and just create the scene and come – like a kid's magician is almost like a good – a better precedent than a professional magician because they just have to deal with whatever's there and make it up as they go and make it work. Um, but, you know, the, just from personal experience, just playing improvised music is is the metaphor that has worked best for me of just being at a club or something and playing and having to grab that audience and make the night work. That That's what it's all about, you know, and that um, – I imagine VR having that quality someday. Yeah. How do you get those people into VR? In a sort of macro, how do you spread VR to places that aren't really niche? Yeah, yeah. Well, the, a lot of people are curious about that right now. I guess – if it were entirely up to me, I'd do it kind of differently than a lot of the big players are doing it right now. What I would what I would do is um, instead of having a store where you download things, I'd, I'd have live events that you join, and uh, they'd be real time. And I'd start to create a little way for people to – so there'd be like a multi-user thing. It happens at a particular time. There's a theme, and the theme might be uh, – it might be not the, the surreal – crazy artistic stuff that I happen to like. It might be something of a very different cultural nature. Like it might be something about football or religious instruction or yoga or I don't know. You know, it could be all these different things. I think there could be a lot of different niches that interest people that are totally different from things and I, that would attract me. But they'd be real time. It'd be live people. And people who are good at it, we'd just start recruiting them and start to try to make stars out of people who are good at interacting inside VR and try to see if we can – build this new kind of career. I mean, I think I think that's that would be the better way to grow the industry than a lot of what we see. Yeah. You talk about a bunch of demos in your book that sound very interesting and have all been lost. Mm. Do you wish that you had preserved all of these? Is it better that this stuff disappears after a while? Oh, that's such a good question. Yeah, like that's a really good question. Like, is it good that we've lost some of past culture? Like, would it be worse for us if we'd preserved every masterpiece from the ancient world? Would it be like a burden? Or is it good that there's kind of some entropy where we have to we, we have a certain amount of memory, but we have to make up new things? Yeah, it's, geez, it's a bit of an imponderable. I um, I don't know if you noticed. There's a link at the end of the book to a video of one of the worlds that survived, which I describe at the end of the book, and I have like this very low quality video of it. But at least there's some documentation that's up on my website. Did you look at it? No, I've, I think I've seen some of the work that you've done before, but it's probably stills. Oh, we'll take a look at it. Yeah, so right at the end of the book, there's. There's a URL and it goes to my website and then there's actually a, um, uh, one of the few surviving videos of an 80s virtual world. Cool. And uh, yeah, it's, of it me, it's of me playing uh, virtual musical instruments for a live, a live performance. And I think it'll um, give you a feeling of what we could do at the time and what it looked like. And I think it's good. I mean I really do. When I look at it, I think, yeah, that was actually pretty cool. Um, but yeah, a lot of them were lost and um, – We've tried to get projects together to see if we could really reconstruct all the machines and software and all the sensors and all the. Th it's vaguely possible, but it would be this massive project. I don't, I don't, I don't know if it's really the thing we should all devote our lives to right now. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. something that preservationists in general have been struggling with a lot lately, like just digital preservation and dealing with obsolete software and trying to set up these ecosystems for things that just don't <clears throat> exist anymore. Yeah. Yep. It's a really interesting because, uh, of course, digital was sold to us back in the day as like uh, infinite memory. Like when something's digital, then it lasts forever. It's not like that paper. That, but in fact, exactly the opposite is true. What happens is the 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 stack of platforms that make any digital thing viable gradually shifts, and then you start to lose it. So. And that's kind of what the section on phenotropic computing was a little bit about in the appendix, right? Well, a little bit. I mean, phenotropic computing. Um, was the vision I've had for what a virtual reality architecture, programming language, uh, user environment would, would look like. And it was this idea for um, a kind of programming that you could change while it happened instead of going through an initial phase where you make a change and then see what it's like. But you'd be, sort of be able to sort of dance with the program and gradually nudge it into doing something differently. And uh, we'd worked out the principles of how that could work. And I think it could be really powerful. But it's a little like this in the sense that I was, I was talking about how these like really ambitious visions for computing being a totally different way tend to um, kind of obsess a lot of people who've been really productive in computer science and they stick with them their whole lives. You know, like uh, I'm still really interested in the phenotropic idea and I tried to describe it a bit in the book. Um, 
it's a really exotic approach to computer architecture that I think would be better, but it's very, very different from anything that's um, taught today or done, you know. And other people like Ivan Sutherland, who made the first VR headset, has been chasing his dream of, uh, of asynchronous architectures where instead of having a central clock running a computer, all the little pieces find each other and the computation emerges. And Ted Nelson, who designed the first digital network, still thinks we got it all wrong and is still chasing his dream that he calls Xanadu. And he's in his 80s now. Um, and I think he's right, by the way. But I mean, you know, like we, we hang on to these things and we keep on working on them even as the world settles on what seems like this encrusted um, kind of mundanity. But, you know, you still hold to it. You still keep on working on it. Do you think that there are chances that we could like start fresh? Would this require us to just we shut down the Internet? Everything is gone. We're rebuilding from the ashes. Can you build these things in like parallel? It's really, you know, I sometimes wonder if that'll happen. Like if things keep on going, if society keeps on being disrupted by the Internet to the degree it has been and things get more and more absurd and they're more and more um, sort of tribal mean-spirited movements that take over countries and more and more people are just acting out of fear instead of anything constructive and nobody believes in the truth anymore and everything just falls apart and we enter into some sort of weird internet apocalypse as foreseen by many science fiction stories uh, maybe we could shut the whole thing down and start over I mean I've been actually going through a bit of a crisis of conscience lately and I think a lot of people in my generation are because we put so much work into building up this thing uh, in the 90s, I was the chief scientist of, the, of this consortium called Internet2 that was a bunch of universities just trying to figure out how to make the Internet scalable. And we thought we were doing the best possible thing for the world. And even though I've – throughout that period, I was writing skeptical essays and cautionary essays and I've always been sort of possibly the most, the most uh, uh, skeptical person in my circles in computer science, you know, and I put, I, I had to deal with a lot of criticism for how critical I was of things. Couldn't everybody believe we were, we were doing the absolute perfect best thing we could do. But even I've been really appalled at how some of it's come out. And I just wonder, like, what did we achieve with all that work, all of these lives that were devoted to this thing? And it, it sometimes seems to be tearing the world apart. It's doing exactly the opposite of what it was supposed to do. Um, and um, I, I do wonder, yeah, we it, that might be how the future unfolds. We might have to start over. It might really be that bad, but I really hope not. I really think if we, you know, not to be a broken record and say the same thing over and over again, but I really think if we can just change the financial incentives so that somebody like Facebook is making money from helping people do creative and wonderful, valuable things rather than from being paid to manipulate them by third parties, if we can just make a more direct and honest kind of commerce, I really think it might correct itself. I think there's still hope for that. Yeah. Well, one of the more optimistic things I guess I got from your book is the idea that future generations are kind of better at dealing with things that blindside right. us. Is there a way that if you are not from that generation that you can kind of capture that, that if you're a Gen Xer, you can handle like the millennials view of social media if you're a millennial you can deal with like kids ability to sort of block out a bunch of this noise it's really good question you're asking fantastic questions <laughs> i do perceive a kind of an improvement in younger generations and i don't know if that's just me being sentimental or succumbing to hopeful thinking i'm not sure but i i think it's real i think it's true that um people who came of age with the, the sort of advertising-driven internet companies are kind of hopelessly addictive and kind of – and these would be sort of the late-generation Xers and millennials. They tend to be a little worse. And as you look at younger and younger people, I think they're being a little more skeptical and a little more careful. And I, I think they're a little less swayed. Not, not perfectly so, but I think there's this – visible process of people becoming familiar and educated and, and in a way I think the word is literate in this new situation and I find I find hope in that and it's one of the reasons I have an 11 year old daughter and it's one of the reasons why I, I'm doing something that's really uncharacteristic for a Silicon Valley parent almost all the people I know who are uh, like in senior tech positions are incredibly careful not to let their kids use the same products that they make their money from building and selling every day. <laughs> like all the kids are in like hippie Waldorf schools and everything's natural and you're not allowed to go online and we'll have like super strict controls on your on your phone and your tablet. It's And I'm not doing that. I feel like I have to trust her to figure it out. I, I even, even if there's a risk in that too, I just I, – I feel like her generation – simply has to figure it out. I just have to trust her because, I mean, that is, the, that is our future. 
that trust is our future. So, I'm, I and so far she hasn't disappointed me. I have to say I feel like she does show a kind of maturity that uh, the previous generation didn't have. You're talking about her using HoloLens, right? Well, no, just like her smartphone and stuff. Mm-hmm. HoloLens doesn't even have enough that runs on it to be a problem yet. I mean, let's just be clear. You know, like HoloLenses are fun. But, you know, another thing that's really cool about whether we're talking about HoloLens or, or what we now have to call traditional or, or classical occlusive virtual reality is to distinguish it from mixed reality is um, when you use it, you don't get into the zombie state. Like if you look at kids using social media or watching videos, either one, they kind of get into this like weird addicted zombie it's a weird thing to see a kid just kind of lose affect and just be focused on a machine. Um, also an adult. I mean, it's just a weird thing. But when people use VR, it's an interactive, a continuously interactive somatic physical thing. They're moving. They're doing things. So it's totally different. And so she, she'll she use a HoloLens or whatever, and then she'll get tired and she'll do something else. And it's like the trampoline. It's like this thing she loves. Um But it's not addictive in the same way. You get tired after a while. It's such a healthier device. Yeah. One of the things I really like about VR is that in games I have to move around. I have to do things. Mm -hmm. I get tired. I can't play for hours. That's also one of the things that scares me when I think about getting older, though, that after a while I'm not going to have the same kind of mobility. Does that just kind of lock me out of VR experiences? No. I mean, um, actually, just the opposite. You can – VR can adapt to – I mean, look – you can you can be a pterodactyl and fly around now, and in real life you can. So it actually, it's very very good at adapting to people with different physical abilities. Uh, that's one of the really great things about it, with a lot of different utility. It's it's um, so no, I don't I don't think that's a problem. Is it something that developers should think about building for specifically? Yeah, you know, uh, once again, if I ran the world. <laughs> And everybody would do exactly as I said. I would say that every VR dev team should have an incredibly diverse staff, including people with different kinds of disabilities, uh, because what it does is it adds so much breadth. I mean, this is a thing that really pisses me off. Like I, um, one of my colleagues is a social scientist who did some experiments with VR worlds and came to this hypothesis that um, men were better at VR than women, that it was an inherently male medium. And I said, well, okay, I want you to go into the dev teams that created the example worlds you're testing and look at the diversity on the, in those teams. And sure enough, it's all young men. They're designing for themselves. And and so that's what comes out. And so the thing is, if the dev team has a lot of diversity in it, not only does it support a diverse range of, of uh, people to enjoy it later, but also it 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 uh, supports the space between the different kinds of ability profiles that people have. And then that gives you the space to change yourself and experience new things within the virtual world. So it actually creates this possibility for personal expression and self-discovery that wouldn't be there if the development was really based on a narrow idea of what a person was. So if there's any area in tech that needs a lot of diversity in the dev teams, it's VR. And um, it does – my heart sinks when I visit some VR group and it's like all – we all just got our PhDs from Stanford. We are white males. We are, you know, <laughs> we are highly technical. We play video games. I'm like, oh, God. You know, like, it's um, that's an almost hopeless situation. That is not what a team should look like in VR. Yeah. It feels a little bit like for a while there were very clear silos in the VR world that mm-hmm. there was, like, the gaming VR industry, which was a couple of studios and a bunch of indie developers. Mm-hmm. There was the video industry. Does that feel like it's changing? I hope so. I mean, um, this gets to this question. You're asking, do I feel like younger people getting into it are getting it better? And I really do. I still think it's – I don't think it's totally taking care of itself and it's still worth bitching about it. <laughs> so I think – I'm not going to stop complaining about it. But yeah, I think there's – I think there is a little bit of emotion on that. I really do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely do remember the first year I think I went to Oculus Connect You could or – SVVR or something, you could count the women on like two hands, and that has at least changed some. It it certainly should. I mean, it's kind of interesting. In the history of things related to VR, there's some things, like you know what had incredible diversity was the rise of holography, which is one of the feeder fields for VR, which always had um, diversity of every kind in it for some reason. I don't even know why that happened, but I think it was the physicality of it. I, I, there's this very particular thing with digital technology that has this way of appealing to kind of a more – or not appealing – accepting a narrow range of people, narrow range of cognitive styles. And we just have to cut through that. 
think we're okay. We're getting close-ish to I think over an okay. hour. So I have very very specific questions about the book that I want to ask. Okay, go for it. Okay, first of all, what was the VR sport that you were developing with the Olympics? You know, it's funny. I'm under. I'm still. I think under a contract where I'm not supposed to talk about it. But we were. We had. Uh, there, there had been a lot of interest in VR at a certain time in the 80s and early 90s. It was as much in the media, perhaps, as it's been in recent years, uh, although that whole wave of interest is somewhat forgotten, I think. And yeah, the, the Olympics Committee had had said, you know, could we do a sport in VR? That would be so great. And so we'd, we'd come up with a crazy thing. It was like a cross between some of the NASA training systems that simulated uh, anti-gravity and some other things. And I still think it should be done sometime. I think it's a really cool idea, and I think a lot of people would enjoy it. So I don't know how familiar you are with, like, current VR competitive games. Is it like any of those that you're aware of, like Lone Echo or...? It was based very much on... Uh, physical devices in which people were moving around in a vertical fashion and quite unlike things that are supported by current commercial VR. Okay. <laughs> okay. Also, what about the incredibly disgusting VR taste prototype that you said someone had developed? <laughs> yes. <laughs> did you ever try that? Um, I I did. And it, it, was, it was not a highly effective or refined device, but it, it was, I think, a proof of concept. Um, and I wish I knew where it was because I, I really think that's one of the great lost objects of, of technical history. So for those who haven't read the book, it's just a – I'd given a talk in Japan where as a joke I said we could imagine a virtual food device to add to virtual reality that would be like this robotic chemical emitter thing you'd bite into and it would simulate the textures of foods and the flavors of foods at once. But uh, my joke was uh, – it would be too disgusting to contemplate this thing, so it'll probably never be built. And then I got this very formal letter from one of the uh, wonderful VR labs in Japan saying, we are pleased to announce that we have developed the ability to disgust you. And so <laughs> the next time I was in Japan, I tried this crazy thing. And it was really hard to sterilize between users and really hard to initialize and really kind of a crazy – but it was like this weird little morphing robot with little chemical squirters and you would stick it in your mouth and start chewing on it. <laughs> And I, I've always said if like if I had an indie band, that thing would be on the cover of our of our album, right? Because it's like such a great object. But uh, yeah, it's one of the many wonderful VR uh, uh, devices lost to the sands of time. I, wait, did it just look like a blob, like a little blob robot? It kind of looked like. Um, it was like this rubber thing with all these little robotic effectors inside it that could collapse or move. And then it had like these little nozzles that would squirt flavors out of little holes in it. And um, yeah. I know. That sounds really disgusting. It, 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 it's absolutely the most repulsive user interface item I have ever seen. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, let me wait. Let me think that through. <laughs> uh, well, it's got some competition. But yeah, it's it's uh, it's – it's up there. I mean, I guess my, my last question is somewhat is much less disgusting, which is that you have a bunch of non-traditional programming languages that you'd talked about. Uh -huh. There's sort of general visual stuff. You had talked about one that you would program by singing. How far did you get in those? Can, can oh, you still write well, them? Well, I got far enough. This was a really long time ago. I mean, this was right at the start of my career in my very early 20s. Yeah, the singing programming language... It got as far as like the kinds of little kid programs you would do with with uh, logo programming little turtles to move around. It was it wasn't um, capable of any large scale programming certainly, but it, it fundamentally you could do little things with it. And um, uh, I that particular approach was too literal minded. I mean, I think the way to program by singing would be through some kind of interesting map from what you sing to potential programs, and that would be through some kind of convolution network or something that would be able to map a large space to a large space. And what I was doing was more trying to map little elements of singing to a traditional kind of programming language with loops and, and whatnot. And, and and that is certainly not scalable. So I, I don't think it merited any more than the exploration I put into it. But I think something else that might bear some similarities could be really interesting. But a convolution network, what, uh, how exactly would that work oh, and what is well, that? All right, so the way we do what's called deep learning and all these fashionable things is we have um, – we take an input set and then we have an output set of things. And then there's some way of relating them to another, usually through a training pass. But it wouldn't have to be a training pass. So you could say um, – let's say – 
You know how um, Google's AI team did this thing where they're they're having like uh, surreal pictures that are spit out of uh, their deep learning network, so you can see what it really knows. How to, you know the DeepMind team did that, um, and um, uh, and so you can imagine um, something like that where you can. Um, dance or sing or do something into a network that has a lot of different stuff in it and sort of navigate through a very, very wide range of outputs that it could have with your movements as a new form of programming or a new form of improvisation. And um, we were actually trying experiments a little like that way back. And and I, I, I believe the principle is sound that something like that could be made to work. So you could have a way of navigating a huge range of possible outputs that you'd never see the whole of and, and, and kind of improvise reality as a form of a new form of programming expression. I think – now I, I'm, I'm starting to feel like I'm going to sound like a flake when I say this, but I, I do really think the foundations are sound. To actually get to the point of being able to do it will require a lot of further research and work, but I believe it's possible. You're looking at me like suddenly. No, this is actually really interesting because I read about <laughs> I read about like visual programming languages and things like that a few years ago, and uh-huh. I was writing a piece about VR, and I was yeah. always curious what happened to them and how far they got. Mm. And so stuff like this is actually really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think. What we want is a form of real-time programming where we're causing the world to come up as quickly as we think or feel it, just like what we do with language where we move our tongue to say things as quickly as we think as, as and feel or we play the piano, we make music as fast as we think and feel. We need to do that with a much broader range of things that we might program and design in virtual reality. And the way to do it is through some sort of a mapping of motion or the things that your body can do in real time to all the outco- outcomes that could happen. And <clears throat> that would look a little bit like what we do with deep learning now, but in reverse. Um, and uh, it, it should be possible. I mean, it should be doable. And uh, it's on the list of things. That, I mean, I have a lot of things I need to build, but uh, uh, someday I will be uh, torturing graduate students who will build models of this thing again. I've, I've done it. A few, I've built about seven versions of it over many years and, and gotten partial results. Any, anything else that you want to say about the book? I want to I want to uh, express gratitude that you read it and asked such extremely well thought out questions, and and you obviously have a deep engagement with the field, and I really appreciate that. Thank you.